For the past few weeks, the attention of the whole world has been focused on Israel and its Jews. And today I want to consider the plight of the Jews. Ever since 2,000 years or so before Christ, Israel had been God's chosen people. While the Gentiles wallowed in darkness, the Hebrew prophets had mapped out the future of Israel as a rich tapestry. God had promised to bless them and to make them a blessing for all the earth. Read in Deuteronomy 28, 12 and 13, The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thy hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head, and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and do them. Now read in the Old Testament that while their faithfulness had its ups and downs, God's love never departed from them, and his hand was always stretched out to save them if they obeyed his voice. They believed that in spite of their shortcomings, God would at an appointed time do a special work through them and would draw the attention of the whole world to them. We read in Zechariah 8, 23 Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and pray unto the Lord, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all of the languages of the nations even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew saying we will go with you for we have heard that God is with you and Isaiah 61:3, arise and shine for thy light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee and the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. The Jews, however, misunderstood these promises. They presumed that it was Judaism itself that was to be the light of the Gentiles. They became spiritually proud and selfishly grasped at God's promises. They wanted to be blessed. They wanted to be the head and not the tail. They wanted the Gentiles to revere them and submit themselves to the authority of Jerusalem and keep its commandments. As a nation and as individuals, they put themselves first and everyone else last. They even put their religious institutions above God. In spite of all the light they had, they simply did not understand God's words nor his requirements. As we read in Jeremiah 5, 20 21, declare this in the house of Jacob and publish it in Judah saying, hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding 
which have eyes and see not, and which have ears and hear not. And Isaiah 58, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Looking at themselves, the Jews felt sure of God's promises. They were children of Abraham. They kept the commandments. They worshipped at Jerusalem, the city of God. They boasted in their knowledge of the scriptures and made a big show of keeping its precepts, but they did so with no real understanding of its teachings. It all seemed so simple to them. Do this. Don't do that. Believe this. Don't believe that. If in doubt, just play follow the religious leaders. They thought they understood and understand they did as far as the flesh is concerned. They had much religious understanding but no understanding of the spirit. They were circumcised in the flesh and clung to their external forms of religion but their hearts were not circumcised. They were devoid of God's spirit. They did not understand that the Lord cared less for doctrinal superiority for the keeping of the letter of the law, for long devotions, for large sacrifices when they sinned, than for matters of the spirit. God cares instead for the hidden man of the heart, for inward holiness more than for outward righteousness. Rather than public exhibitions of praise, God desires to be worshipped within the secret recesses of man's heart, a worship they knew nothing about. Their minds were on earthly things, on things that they could see and touch, on doctrines and devotions and temple rituals. They replaced the reverence for God that they could not see with reverence for the priests and rulers that they could see. The result was that in their hearts their worship of God was not a lot different from the worship of the Gentiles. It was not so much that the Jews worshipped the idols made with hands, but they worshipped the Lord as the pagans worshipped their own gods. The pagan gods all demanded that the outside of the cup be clean, but cared less for the inside of the cup. The Gentiles in general valued public exhibitions of morality, of kindness, of honesty, but were less concerned with what happened in private. It was in this way that the Jews followed after the gods of the Gentiles around them. They sincerely made a show of worshipping the Lord in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, but during the week, in the secret groves of their minds, they worshipped gods of their own making. How many Christians today worship the Lord the same way that the pagans worship their idols? In words and songs and devotions and profession of faith, in rituals, in the exercise of the flesh, but not in the exercise of a contrite and humble spirit. The problem today is that many Christians likewise confuse religious things with spiritual things. They confuse the direction of religious leaders with the leading of God's Spirit. They think that religious practices are by definition spiritual, but mostly they are temporal. Like the Jews, they think that God requires external manifestation of religion but instead he requires internal manifestation of his spirit. They do not understand that the work of the spirit is within and the work without 
is that of the flesh. Now, no matter how sincere one's external expression of religion may be, it can never substitute for the presence of the Holy Spirit within your heart. Christ said of those who were sincerely waiting for his coming in Matthew 25, 1-2, the kingdom of heaven can be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom and five of them were foolish and five were wise. And from a religious perspective, the foolish virgins are in every respect the same as the wise virgins. But from a spiritual perspective, they are worlds apart. They have copious amounts of religion but cannot understand that they are lacking in the spirit, which is represented by the lack of oil in their lamps. And this was exactly the case of the Jews and of many Christians today. They foolishly think that their religious understanding is sufficient to meet the bridegroom. They were, and many will be surprised to find that they are wrong. When Jesus came, the Jews could not understand him. He was a renegade, an enigma. He did not seem to sufficiently revere the temple at Jerusalem. He avoided Jewish institutions. He did not support them financially and kept only a bare minimum of their traditions. He had no respect for the authority of the religious leaders but was constantly undermining their authority. He simply was not a team player. He mingled with the heretical half-pagan Samaritans. He dined with tax collectors and sinners. He did not seem to be concerned with the tangible exercise of religion, whether private or public. He seemed unconcerned about the Roman oppression, about the daily humiliation and injustice done to Jerusalem and the Jews. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 13, 13 15, Wherefore I speak unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, for this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest that any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Nothing Jesus said made sense to the Jews. Instead of affirming their religion, he told them that the heathen idolaters would enter heaven before them. He did not seem to be overly concerned with their keeping of the law, nor did he condemn lawbreakers, such as Mary Magdalene. Instead, he spoke about matters of the heart, of intangible things like the spirit, of being born again, of repentance, of faith. He spoke of an authority they could not perceive, of a grace they could not grasp, of a future they could not fathom. We read in the Desire of Ages, page 111, No one upon earth had understood him, and during his ministry he must still walk alone. Throughout his life his mother and his brothers did not comprehend his mission. Even his disciples did not understand him. They could not understand him, because he was from above, and they were from below. Their understanding was according to the flesh. They could not understand why Jesus did not condemn the Romans nor the Samaritans, but instead directed his condemnation towards the Jewish religious leaders and criticised God's chosen commandment-keeping people. To the Jews, the combination of Christ's miracle-working power and attitudes towards them made no sense at all unless it was possessed by a devil. But Jesus 
said in John 8, 43 to 48, Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan, and hast a devil? Imagine a church member today who will not submit himself to its leaders, but accuses them of being blind guides, ignorant, pretentious, selfish, proud, hypocritical, of being snakes destined to hell, of being children of the devil, and lamenting that the church at large will be rejected by God, utterly destroyed unless it repents. How would you react? Would we likewise accuse them of having a wrong spirit and try to shut them up? The Jews, on the other hand, had no problem whatsoever understanding Barabbas. He hated and condemned the Romans, but had no criticism of the highly respected church leaders, other than perhaps that they weren't doing enough to advance the temporal interests of Israel. See, Barabbas was a typical Jewish zealot. He shared the religious ideals, their dreams of being freed from the Roman yoke, the dreams of the triumph of Judaism and the future glory of Jerusalem. He practiced a form of authority that the Jews were familiar with and they approved of the justice he meted out to the Romans. They were, as they say, on the same page as him. The Jews, or some of them, may have thought that Barabbas' methods were a bit extreme, but they agreed with his goals and the end justified his means. We still hear it today, that the wanton killing of thousands of women and children is a necessary, justifiable and unavoidable consequence of ensuring the security of the State of Israel. In contrast, Christ taught that the means is more important than the end, even if it leads to your own personal defeat. To love your enemies, to turn the other cheek. The Jews could not understand how what Jesus preached would obtain their desired end, and so did not care for Christ nor his means. Now, I guess some of you may not know that Barabbas is only a surname. It means son of Abbas, just like Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah. Except Abbas means the harbour. Now, various ancient Bible manuscripts, not Greek ones, including the Syriac and also the Armenian, give Barabbas's full name as Jesus Barabbas. Now, the Syriac Bible was written in the Aramaic language. We know that it's the language that Matthew wrote his gospel in. We're not sure what language the original other Gospels were written in. Luke was probably written in Greek because he understood Greek. When put to the choice, the Jews rejected the Jesus they did not understand and chose the Jesus they did understand. And it has always been true and will continue to be so that people choose what they understand over what they do not understand. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't. In choosing the devil they knew, the Jews thought they were making an informed decision. But they were completely wrong. 
they chose to follow the leading of those who they were familiar with and who they understood as dumb beasts blindly follow their masters that they are familiar with to the slaughter. In choosing the Jesus they knew over the Jesus they did not understand, they lost everything. In Desire of Ages, page 737, says a nation's sin and a nation's ruin were due to its religious leaders. You know, Isaiah 56, 10 to 11, says his watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough. Then and they are shepherds that cannot understand. Psalms 32.9 tells us, Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which hath no understanding. Jeremiah 5.21 Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. And Isaiah 4.6 My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And we can replace that word with lack of understanding. Because they had a lot of knowledge. They didn't understand any of it. Lucifer is more than able to convince you that you understand when you do not. To make you believe that God's curses are blessings and that God's blessings are curses. Was not Barabbas at first persecuted by the Romans for practicing his religious beliefs? Did not public opinion swing in his favour? And was he not then set free by a special dispensation by the governor? To the Jews, this was proof that God was blessing Barabbas while they saw Christ as one cursed by God. What was the result? The Jews embraced the spirit of Barabbas and rejecting the spirit of Jesus of Nazareth, they rebelled against the Romans who in turn besieged Jerusalem. When the Roman army suddenly retreated from Jerusalem for no apparent cause, the Jews ambushed them in Beth Horon, killing 6,000. The Jews thought this was proof that God was blessing them, but instead it was a curse because it set the stage for Rome to return and completely destroy the Jews, their city and their temple, and to condemn the few survivors to slavery or exile. And all this happened because while thinking they understood, they're really not. Their understanding was superficial, focused on those things that made them feel good about themselves, that assured them of God's protections, of future blessings, that increased their self-confidence. It was according to the flesh, motivated by selfish expectations and spiritual pride. Now the Old Testament had foretold the sure result of this lack of understanding. Jeremiah 4.19 to 22 My bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled and my curtains in a moment. How long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children and have none understanding. 
Isaiah 27, 9, 11. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. The defence city shall be desolate, and the habitation forsaken, and left like a wilderness. For it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favour. Now, 60 years after Jerusalem was destroyed, the Romans wiped out what remained of the Jewish population in Judea. They had sowed to the wind and now reaped the whirlwind. God's blessings were turned into a curse. And for the next 500 years, the Jews were banned from any presence in Jerusalem. Many of the few that survived moved back into Babylon, which became the home of Judaism for the next 1,000 years. It was there that in about 300 AD that they finally wrote down the traditions and sayings of the scribes and the rabbis that Jesus had condemned, and which today they call the Mishnah, the holiest book of Judaism, of which the Talmud is a part. We read Matthew 15.1.3, Then came to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were Jerusalem, saying, Why do the disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of the God by your tradition? And Mark 7, 6-9, Well, hath I side prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he said unto them, Fool, well ye reject the commandments of God, that you may keep your own tradition. And Mark 7, 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. The light that the Jews had once received had become darkness. They became a curse rather than a blessing in the earth and would become the tail and not the head. For the next 2,000 years, the Jews were homeless wanderers. They had no safety nor security wherever they went. As the Old Testament had prophesied in Leviticus 26, 31-33, And I will make your cities waste, and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the heathen, and will draw a sword out after you. Leviticus 26, 36, And upon them that are left of you I will send a faintness into their hearts, in the lands of the enemies, and the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them, and they shall flee as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursueth. Deuteronomy 28, 43-44, And the stranger that is within thee shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him, and he shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. Deuteronomy 28, 28, 29, The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at noonday, as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways, and thou shalt be oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. In verse 37, thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, a byword among all the nations, with the Lord lead thee. Yet, in spite of this, they continue to claim that they are God's special people. That only they have the light of truth, that the Gentiles would in the future still submit to them. Their attitude created public resentment, which led to their persecution, which they in turn interpreted as proof that they were right. From time to time, violent riots would break out against them all over Europe. 
national rulers tried to placate the common people by forcing the Jews to convert to either Islam or Catholicism. When that didn't work, the kings of France, England, Germany, Austria, Holland, Portugal, Spain and other nations at various times either massacred them or expelled them from their lands. And wherever they went, the Jews soon again had to flee from those places as well. At the end of the 1800s, the European governments finally decided to solve the Jewish problem by finding a homeland far away where the Jews could go to once and for all. This was the beginning of the Zionist movement. The idea of sending the Jews back to Palestine was attractive, but Palestine was under the control of the Ottoman Empire, which made it impossible unless without a war for which there was no popular support. It did not help that there was fierce opposition to this plan from Orthodox European Jews and most American Jews were likewise either lukewarm if not openly opposed to the idea of a Jewish state in Palestine. In 1903, the British government then proposed creating a homeland for the Jews in Uganda, Africa. But this was even less popular amongst the Jews and, of course, didn't take place. Then, in 1908, the British discovered oil in the Middle East, which those in power felt was worth fighting over. But how could they get the common people to support it? It was not, I suggest, a random coincidence that the very next year, in 1909, the Schofield Reference Bible was published by Oxford University Press. Its writing and printing had been providentially funded by, guess who? Zionist Wall Street bankers. This Bible widely promoted an idea originated by John Nelson Darby called dispensationalism that teaches that the Jews must return to Jerusalem rebuild the temple and reinstate rabbinical Judaism and blood sacrifices before Christ's millennial rule can take place from Jerusalem. Within five years of this Bible's publication, sufficient support had been created for Zionism within evangelical Christianity to enable the British and later American governments to use it as a vehicle to pursue their interventionist foreign policies in the Middle East and have done so ever since. After the British captured Palestine from the Ottoman Empire in World War I, in a letter to, catch the name, Baron Walter Rothschild in 1917, the British government officially declared its support to establishing Palestine as a homeland for the Jews. The Roman Catholic Rothschild family has been and continues to be the most active in promoting Zionism. By 1934, Baron Edmund de Rothschild, who is known as the father of the Jewish community in Palestine, had bought, with his own money, nearly 125,000 acres of land in Palestine for Jewish settlements. Under the military protection of at first the British and then the Americans, Jews began to emigrate to Palestine against the opposition of local population, which has ever since resulted in increasing violence in numerous wars. I ask, is Zionism really a blessing to the Jews or are they just being exploited by powerful outside interests? Is Zionism just a tool to create political instability in the region 
in order to maximise financial profits for parties behind the scene. You know, there are many anti-Zionist Jews who consider the modern state of Israel to be a curse rather than a blessing. A curse to the whole world. They see it as a blasphemous attempt organised by non-Jewish influences to usurp God's will. And they not only oppose it, but actively work to dismantle it. Of course, today we call those Jews anti-Semites or self-hating Jews. Many more Jews are not anti-Zionist Jews, they're non-Zionist Jews. And what that means is that they may not be directly opposed to the existence of the State of Israel, but do not assign any religious significance to it and decry the licentiousness of its secular culture. What do I mean by that? Not only are 40% of Israeli Jews completely secular, but Israel has been called the gay capital of the Middle East. I ask, did God build up or did he destroy Sodom? You know, Zionism is a political, not a religious movement. It is the modern equivalent of the zealots in Jesus' day. Today, Zionists want modern-day zealots to do the work that Jesus of Nazareth declined to do. When he declared, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? Barabbas, on the other hand, he was quite prepared, and his servants today are quite prepared to fight and to establish the kingdom of Israel in this world. The Old Testament said, not by my not by power, but by my spirit, Zechariah 4, 6. While Barabbas says, not by God's spirit, but with tanks and carpet bombing. It is difficult to reconcile Zionism with the scriptures. The Bible clearly teaches that the condition for the Jews to return to Israel was for them, in Leviticus 26, 42, to confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary to me. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept the punishment for their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I ask, have the Jews as a people humbled their hearts and confessed the iniquity and that of their fathers? Or do they cling to the very same traditions and religious teachings that led to the rejection of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem? Zionists today have as much understanding and are as confused as those who cry out, release unto us Barabbas. Was Barabbas a blessing to the Jews or a curse? Why would then having the political descendants of Barabbas in charge of the country be more of a blessing today than it was back then? Unfortunately today it's not just Jews but Christians who are choosing Barabbas over Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, for every Jew that supports Zionism today, there are 10 Christians who want the Jews back in Palestine. They seem to think that Christ has changed his mind and now wants his servants to fight to establish a political kingdom for him. It is bewildering that the most ardent supporters of the hatred, violence and genocide in Palestine today are so-called Christians. Have they read the Sermon on the Mount? 
If today's Parabbas is the saviour of the Jews and the light of the Gentiles, then the world is in utter and complete darkness. What kind of light is it that exists not in peace, but in violence, not in meekness, but in revenge, not in love, but in hatred? What kind of light is it that causes all of the inhabitants of Palestine, whether Jewish or Christian or Muslim, to live in constant fear for their lives? And they do, because I've been there. Those who support the use of force and escalate violence are not bringing about a millennium of peace and safety, but are hastening a millennium of death and desolation. Now, there are many Christians who think that in the future the Jews will be converted. That is, that they will accept Jesus as the Messiah while keeping the rabbinic traditions, and this will make them a light and a blessing to the whole earth. It is as if the Jews had accepted the person of Christ as king, then Jerusalem, its temples and rituals and sacrifices and traditions would all have been preserved till today. They forget that the Jews did try to make Jesus their king, but he refused. He did not come to establish the Jewish rabbinic system, but to overthrow it, which is why they killed him. He denounced his traditions, he condemned the hypocrisy of their superficial religion, he criticised its leaders, but today, Christian Zionists not only want Jesus to be the king of the Jews, but for him to rebuild the very things that Jesus came to tear down. They see Zionism as a fulfilment of Bible prophecy, but ignore that most of the prophecies they cite were fulfilled when the Jews returned from Babylonian captivity. They also forget that the New Testament condemns those who are of the circumcision, who assert that, that Jewish rituals and traditions were compatible with Christianity, but who the Bible describes as unruly and vain talkers and deceivers in Titus 1.10. They ignore the teaching of the scriptures that the Jewish religion system was but a temporary shadow of a better way, a better priesthood, a more perfect sacrifice, the heavenly sanctuary. One that the death of Christ forever did away with. And that the Bible condemns the reaffirmation of Jewish rituals, traditions and animal sacrifices. Who then is this Jesus that Zionist Christians want to re-establish the blood sacrifices that Christ did away with? Is it Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God, or is it Jesus Barabbas, the Zealot? Like the Jews in Jesus' day, these Christians also don't understand the Scriptures. While not all Jews support modern Barabbas, as a whole their understanding of God is the same as that of their forefathers. They still believe, as the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu declared just recently, quote, we are the people of light, they are the people of darkness, unquote. They still think that God is interested in external, tangible exercise of religion, in doctrinal beliefs, in rituals, in devotions, in sacrifices, in the circumcision of the flesh. They still do not understand God, they do not understand his authority, nor his justice, nor his grace, nor the prophets. The tragedy today is that Christians are just as confused. And I'm not talking about those Christians who believe that the Jewish temple must be rebuilt, that think that animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin must again be reinstated so that Christ can return and those who eagerly look forward to the Battle of Armageddon. No. I'm talking about those whose understanding of God is superficial whose minds are set on tangible things, on forms of religion, on profession of faith, on the keeping of the law, on good works, on charity, on outward humility, on public worship, 
on private devotions. I'm talking about all those who accept the person of Christ, who claim to worship him and seek his blessings and have knowledge of the scriptures and think they have much light but have no real understanding of God's word. Of those that Jesus referred to when he said in Matthew 13, 18 to 19, Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in the heart. This is he which received the seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed in the ground, good ground, is he that heareth the word and understands it. The parable does not say that those without understanding deny Christ and leave the church. It says that the living seed, the active ingredient, the crucial idea is snatched away from their hearts. At first it captivates their interest, but not being able to understand it, they do not retain it in their minds and they return back to the comfort of their existing ideas even while they remain sitting in the pews. In exactly the same way that the Jews marvelled at Christ's words and acknowledged that no man ever spoke as this man. And as we read in Luke 4.13, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power, yet seeing they saw not, and hearing they heard not, and neither did they understand, because conflicted, with their cherished ideas and some who could understand didn't want to because they were offended by his words. They preferred to put their trust in their own understanding even though God says, lean not unto thy own understanding, Proverbs 3.5. There are many in the church today who have had the living seed planted in their minds. They have marvelled at the word. They have been astonished at its doctrine. The word came to them with power. They heard things they've never heard before. New thoughts were planted in their minds, but seeing they did not see, and hearing they did not hear, and not being able to understand, they put it aside. Like the Jews, they may boast of the knowledge of the scriptures and in the keeping of its precepts, but they have no real understanding of its teachings they will reap the same bitter fruit as did the Jews in Jesus' day. We may think that we as a people have superior understanding of the scriptures and may want others to come to our understanding, but do we really understand it properly? Or like the Jews who missed the whole point of the law, even as they kept it to the very letter, are we missing the wood for the trees? Are we like the scribes and rulers in Jesus' day that we read about in 1 Timothy 1.7 desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they are firm? The thing is, they did understand, but their understanding is according to the flesh. Is our understanding according to the flesh or according to the Holy Spirit? How would you tell if it's one or the other? Have you thought about that? Many claim to be spirit-led and spirit-filled, but what spirit is it? Is it a spirit 
they understand, a spirit they're familiar with and are comfortable with, like that of Barabbas? Or is it one that challenges their thinking, that attacks their self-assurance, that makes them uncomfortable, like the spirit of Jesus Christ? The Jews had no problem understanding Barabbas telling them that they needed to self-confidently demand their Jewish rights and privileges. But the words of Christ telling them that their Jewishness was of no value and that they were unfit for heaven unless they were born again was too hard for them to understand. Any understanding that makes you feel good about yourself that reaffirms your position, that gives you assurance, that makes you complacent, is according to the flesh. In contrast, the understanding born of the Spirit of God stirs you to self-doubt, to self-examination, to self-condemnation, to being broken, to contrition, to self-abandonment. The Spirit says in Philippians 3, 7, 8, But what things were gained to me, those I count loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and you count them but done. The Spirit of Christ was not profitable to the Jews. They wanted to gain, not to lose, to increase not decrease. They wanted the Gentiles to come to their light. They wanted to be the head and not the tail. And they could not reconcile Christ's words with their understanding. They could not see that before the crown must come the cross, that they must decrease before they could increase, that they must be the last if they would be the first, and that they must realise that they were in darkness before they could see the light. They did not understand that spirit of brokenness, of humility toward God that says, blot out my name from thy book if by that means your name is glorified. They would rather everyone else first go to hell than they miss out on heaven. It's the motivation of our religion also to selfishly benefit thereby? Do we also want the world to come to our light? Do we want to be the head and not the tail? To increase and not decrease? Do we think that our religion, our profession of faith, our trust in God, our keeping the commands, our good works, our charity, our public worship, our private devotions entitle us somehow to God's blessings? to health, to peace and prosperity in this life and joy evermore in the life to come. If by our religion we selfishly seek to grasp at God's promises, our understanding is no different from that of the Jews. It is according to the flesh. How many even begin to understand what Christ meant when he said, you must be born again? The Jews thought salvation was based on who you were, what you did, what you believed. It was all about you. They believed that as children of Abraham they had a birthright to enter heaven as long as they continued to believe and obey the God of Abraham. 
They commonly use the metaphor of being born again to explain how a Gentile could become a Jew and share in their birthright as a child of Abraham and be assured of salvation. But Jesus destroyed their false expectation. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus understood that Jesus meant that he had to be born as something other than a Jew because he already was a Jew. He thought Jesus was asking him to give up his Jewish birthright, his confidence of his standing with God and the expectation of God's blessings. It meant that he had to be in the same position as the despised Roman centurion whose servant was sick. The loathed Canaanite woman whose daughter was vexed by a devil. The repulsive Samaritan leper. The repugnant demoniac in the country of the Gadarenes. It meant that he had to become as a Gentile, a Samaritan, condemned by God and undeserving of God's blessings and deserving genocide. that he had to abandon all confidence based on who he was, what he did, what he believed, and his only hope was in pleading for the mercy of God. You see, the new birth is not a supposed legal change of status or a metaphysical upgrade of our person due to something you do or believe. It is not at all a conversion of self from damnation to glorification by means of a change of profession or belief or modification of behaviour. It is also not a change of who you identify as based on some external modification, like a man, for example, who dresses a woman, or someone who is proud of their humility, or the self-entitled that boasts of their unworthiness. The new birth gives no basis for such self-deception. It does not make sinners suppose themselves to be saints, but makes supposed saints realise that they are sinners. The new birth is a fundamental change of the spirit within you. It's a change from self-confidence to self-doubt, from self-satisfaction to self-abasement, from self-approval to self-condemnation. It is the realisation that there is no more hope for the salvation of your Christian self than there is for the salvation of the atheist or infidel. To be born again is the change of motivation, is to stop seeking the glorification of self, whether in this life or the next life, but instead to seek the glory of God, even if need be, at the cost of heaven. Now, God is no respecter of persons. The Christians stand before God today in exactly the same capacity as the Jews stood before him 2,000 years ago. Just as Jesus told a Jew, not a Gentile, that he must be born again, so today he is calling for Christians, not atheists or infidels, to be born again. Can you understand? Or is that too hard for you? Are we also unable to understand that our Christianity makes no difference? And that unless we are born again of His Spirit, we are likewise unfit for heaven? Do we also prefer the words of Jesus Barabbas, saying that all we need to do 
is to confidently demand the blessings of our Christian birthright. Do we feel just as secure in God's blessings, assured of our standing with him, and in no more need of a physician than did the Jews in Jesus' day? You see, the Jews also completely misunderstood God's grace. They thought that out of all of the nations of the earth, God had randomly picked Israel to enjoy his favour and had chosen them to be born a son of Abraham. While some Jews today think that God's favour is completely unmerited and automatically entitles them to his blessing, irrespective of what they believe or do, in Jesus' day, most Jews believed that continuing to enjoy God's unmerited favour was conditioned on their continuing to obey the law of Moses. It is either one or the other. If it is contingent on any condition whatsoever, then it is no longer unmerited, since the acceptance of the condition is what merits the continued favour. It is only unmerited if something is obtained with no conditions at all. And today, by and large, Christians of all denominations, including ourselves, also want to think that God's grace is some kind of unmerited favour that entitles us to heaven. But we don't want Judas, Herod and Caiaphas to be in heaven alongside Moses, Enoch and Elijah. We want to have it both ways and say that God gives us unmerited favour, but we have to accept it in some way before we can actually enjoy it. Whatever this requirement is, it doesn't actually matter. It could be believing something, it could be joining a church, receiving a sacrament, keeping some religious observance, practicing glossolalia, or anything else. What matters is that it obtains for us an entitlement to heaven that otherwise we would have no right to. Unlike the Jews, we also want God's grace to be an entitlement that we don't deserve, that is partly merited and partly unmerited. And this is why Jesus told the parable of the wedding feast to correct the confused understanding of the Jews about his grace. The same confusion that many of us also have. He explained that you can do whatever is required to accept the invitation and turn up to the feast all you like. But that does not guarantee your entry. God's grace is not an entitlement to heaven. It is an instrument that he freely grants us that we must make right use of if we would be fit to enter heaven. Entering into heaven is 100% merited on making the right use of his grace. His grace is not an inclination to believe. It's not a desire to do good works or partake in sacraments. It is the influence of the Holy Spirit that leads us to be born again in repentance each day, earnestly seeking God for holiness. Of course, repentance is something else the Jews didn't understand. They thought it was just about what you did and did not realise that it's about who you are. It's less about your actions and more about knowledge of your own self and God's holiness. Is less about the flesh and more to do with the spirit. The Jews did not understand Christ's call to repentance just as we do not understand it today. They thought Jesus was calling for the publicans and harlots to repent from their sins because pious Jews had no need to repent. Today we think it is a call for the atheists and the drug addicts that they need to repent, but not sincere Christians. They thought and we think that repentance has to do with your behaviour, but that is not what Jesus meant. He was calling them to repent from their spiritual pride, from their presumption, from their selfish motivations, from the self-deception that lay at the foundation 
of their religious understanding. The understanding of the Jews led them to feelings of confident entitlement and left them no room for self-examination, for self-doubt, self-condemnation. Repentance was for willful sinners. The new birth was for the Gentiles and God's grace was an entitlement to heaven. Does our understanding make us feel confident and entitled to God's blessings? Or do we also need to repent, be born again and in need of more grace? We may think that we have a better understanding of God's words than they did, but while the external expression of our religion is different, by and large, our fundamental understanding is essentially identical as there was. We may think we are God's special people. We may think that while the world wallows in darkness, we understand God's word and his prophesied plan for us. We may think that we are the light of the world and that through us all the earth will in the future be blessed. But in thinking this way, we demonstrate that our understanding of God is no different from theirs. We may have and believe all the truth and be zealous in obeying God's law and in doing good works as the Jews did to our own condemnation. We are repeating the history of Israel, not in action, but in spirit. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and 12. Now all these things happen to them for examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him who thinks he standeth take heed lest he fall. Are we also like them, foolish virgins? Has our light been turned into darkness, even as we hold forth the truth of our doctrine? Do we think we are a blessing to those around us, but are actually a curse to them? Are we the tail while we think we're the head? Are the words of Jeremiah true for us, as it was for them? Where it says in Jeremiah 4.22, For my people is foolish, they have not known me. They are sottish children, they have none understanding. The time may come when, like Barabbas and the Jews, we will also be hated and persecuted because of our religion. But persecution does not prove religious correctness. Public opinion may turn in our favour and our claims be upheld, but that is no evidence that we have any light. We may even be granted special privileges and protection to preserve our religious identity. But that is no evidence that God is with us. All this happened to the Jews and to Barabbas. But were they blessings or were they curses? The plight of the Jews is a warning of what our own fate will be if we fail to properly understand what God has revealed in his word. If we are mistaken about our understanding, the time will come when we also, like them, shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And as Amos 8.12 says, and we shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the west, and shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and not find it. Or, are we doing what the Bible exhorts us to do in 2 Corinthians 35? Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. How can we examine if we really understand the Spirit of God? Here are some questions that we might want to ponder. What is faith? Is it A, earnestly pleading with God because of our desperate need? 
Or is it B, confidently presuming and claiming God's blessings? Question two. Is God's grace an entitlement to heaven? Or is it an instrument by which we can gain our fitness to heaven? Question three. What spirit is within you? Is it a spirit of confidence and self-satisfaction? Or one of brokenness and self-doubt and humility? Question four. Have you really been born again? Or have you just baptised the old man and now self-identify as having been born again? Can you tell the difference? Question five. Are you experiencing continual repentance? Or is repentance only for those who commit acts of sin? Question six. Can you tell if you are growing in holiness or if you are stuck in a spiritual rut growing in self-righteousness? Question eight. Does God overlook your lack of fitness and entitle you to heaven because you meet some condition? And the last question, is your salvation the most important thing in the world? How do you think the Jews would answer these questions? If your answers are the same as theirs, then you fail the test. It means that your understanding is not according to God's spirit. It means that Jesus was speaking to you when he said you must be born again. He was appealing to you when he said that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There are many today who have chosen to follow Jesus, but they follow Jesus Barabbas, not Jesus of Nazareth. Narrow is the way and straight is the gate which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Many think they understand the way, but the way they follow is one that makes them feel good about themselves that makes them confident of their understanding and assures them of God's future blessing. They choose not to follow the way of him who questions their understanding, that who says that unless they come before God in the same attitude of humility as the publicans and the Gentiles, he will not hear them. Who tells them that unless they repent, the heathen will take their place in heaven. His words they cannot understand. Can you understand? Beloved, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints, Jude 1.3. Wherefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, 2 Peter 1.10. Let us not repeat the same mistakes as the Jews.